Welcome to The Breakdown with Bradcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. We are back with our esteemed panelists, Representative Walter Hudson, John Rouleau, and Priya Samsadar. We have also invited former guest Dave Thule to join our panel today. As a reminder, Representative Walter Hudson is in his first term in the Minnesota House and represents the Albertville, Otsego, and St. Michael area. John Rouleau has long been active in Republican politics and currently serves as the executive director of the Minnesota Jobs Coalition. And Preya Samsundar has a long history doing Republican communications work for parties and candidates. And as a reminder and full disclosure, Priya is currently working on behalf of Nikki Haley's presidential super PAC. And our new panelist, but returning guest, is Dave Thule, who has been active in Republican politics, and we recently had him on to discuss his decision to join the lawsuit here in Minnesota to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Today, we are continuing our bonus episode series on the presidential nomination race. With our panelists, we are going to break down the New Hampshire primary and what its results mean for the Republican presidential race. We will also break down how the candidates have approached the race in the Granite State and who needs to do well to impact the weeks ahead. And we will end with our predictions for Tuesday's primary. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the show. Thank you all for joining us again today. We are going to chat, start by breaking down just understanding of the New Hampshire primary. Now, we got way into the weeds last week on our bonus episode about the Iowa caucuses. Very different system, a little bit more straightforward with the primary here in New Hampshire. So um, there are 22 delegates up for grabs here, a proportional allocation uh, based on the results of the primary. So primary is Tuesday, January 23rd. One thing that um, I did learn in this one is that it does ha- they do have a semi-open primary in New Hampshire, so um, folks who are not registered with either party can still participate with a party of their choosing, um, which we'll get into uh, some implications and, and what we're, our predictions are from candidates, but that tends to allow some folks who maybe are a little bit more in the middle, independence, which New Hampshire seems to have a lot of, uh, the ability to participate and and maybe in this situation have an impact on the race. Um, those who are registered cannot cross vote. They, If you're a registered Republican, you vote in the Republican ballot and vice versa. So wanted to, does anybody have any great um, things to share about just the understanding of a New Hampshire primary difference between primary and caucuses that you want to get into? All right, then I'm going to nerd out for my second here. Uh, With a little bit of the history, it's a little bit similar to Iowa, but a little less um, maybe, you know, not the protests and and big – impact events that were going on in Iowa in the mid-1900s. So uh, 1920s is when New Hampshire started as the first primary state. Uh, It then was focused on the delegate um, electing the convention delegates, but they did similar to in Iowa when they were trying to take it away from kind of the good old boys network and the backroom deals. 1948 is when they had voters start to vote directly for presidential candidates. Um, one of note that kind of comes in the historical context was 1952. President Harry Truman lost the state's Democratic par- primary and then decided to not seek re-election, which then led to uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower becoming ours our president that time. Uh, a couple other recent history, the New Hampshire winner, the who has won the New Hampshire primary typically has become the candidate. I'm sorry, the nominee for each party. Um, one exception is 1996. Pat Buchanan beat Dole by one point. So that is very slight uh, win there, but it was one of those exceptions. 
And then one thing that I thought was very interesting, um, there is a village called Dixville Notch. Uh, four people live in the village. They open at midnight. They are a longtime tradition of being the first voters in the Granite State to cast their ballots. Fascinating and how cute, right? Do you want to get into a little bit, and I, this isn't just the Becky show, so we'll we'll come around to everybody here shortly, um, but when it comes to Democrats, and this is something I'm interested to, to hear from our, our panelists about your opinion on this, the Democrats have made a move this year. So in an attempt, they did not want New Hampshire, which is predominantly white, to be their first state in the country for the Democratic primary. So... Um, instead of New Hampshire, they're focusing on South Carolina. South Carolina won, uh, or Biden won South Carolina's primary in 2020 and placed fifth in New Hampshire. So this is the first time in 50 years that there is going to be a change. Um, largely the DNC and the Biden campaign made this decision, went to North New Hampshire. New Hampshire said a hard pass. We're keeping it as is. We're not changing the law. Um, and so due to the DNC rules, Biden is not permitted to participate in the New Hampshire primary. So he is not on the ballot, um, which is also leading to the likelihood of not getting Democrat results um, for quite a while because there is expected to be a significant write-in campaign for President Biden. On the Democrat side, they do have 33 delegates, um, but because of the issues surrounding the first in the nation, everything, the the delegates uh, in New Hampshire are not going to be bound to the proportionality that the Republicans will be. Any thoughts? Let's let's hear. Representative, I see a little smile on your face. What are your thoughts about the Democrats changing this, making a move for the first time in 50 years? Well, it just reminds me, you know, I had a conversation with a radio host earlier today regarding the implementation of Minnesota's marijuana law. And it just reminds me of how in tripping over themselves to be equitable and respectful of DEI and uh, their their kind of woke worldview that they managed to muck up processes more than you could possibly, if you were trying to do it on purpose, you couldn't do a better job, right? Um, and, and that certainly seems to be the case with what you're describing out of New Hampshire, that they, they've managed to conjure a way where their own president, um, who is running for re-election, can't be on the ballot in a state and so they have to conjure this write-in write campaign in order to make it happen. Um, I am more than happy to take the opportunity to just sidestep and let them uh, let them be what they are, which is not terribly competent. They say if your opponent's uh, messing up, you stand by and let them mess up. I mean, that's not the eloquent way of saying it, but... Um, the last thing I want to say before we move on to discussing key candidates uh, is uh, New Hampshire has a very low threshold of <clears throat> their requirements for being on the ballot. You have to pay $1,000, you know, be 35, natural born citizen, you know, some regular requirements. Um, so in 1992 primary, they had 62 candidates. Um, and in 2016, there were 58 candidates running in the pre presidential primaries in New Hampshire. So that's relatively significant and, and just wanted to share. Now I want to break down and go around the horn here on the different candidates and their strategies in New Hampshire. Um, Priya, I want to start with you. Obviously, uh, Nikki Haley gal here. Can you talk to us a little bit about Haley? She's performing really well in the polls in New Hampshire, obviously has put a lot of work in there. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about her strategy there, maybe how it's different than Iowa and, and what she's hoping for? 
you know, to your point, it is very different than Iowa. And it's just because the makeup between Iowa and New Hampshire is so vastly different. Whereas you have a state that is very significant in just driving. I mean, just going from Des Moines to Omaha is like two and a half hours. Going from Des Moines to Cedar Rapids is two and a half hours. To Davenport, it's three. Same thing up to Sioux, Sioux Cities, uh, up near the South Dakota border, another three hours. It's just a very large state. has a lar- lot of media markets that you have to be able to play in. Whereas New Hampshire, you can drive around the state in a couple of hours. Uh, you really have two media markets that you really have to focus on. Uh, the New Hampshire media market is literally one TV station, WMUR, and then you have the Boston media market, which really only pays attention as you until you get closer to the race. And so, um, it, it, just territorially and geographically, uh, the states are, are vastly different. Um, when you're looking at, at the electorate, it, again, it's very different. Where you have Iowa, one of the most conservative states in the country. Uh, has really moved red over the last few years, uh, has uh, really seen the makeup uh, of its electorate change to the point where now all four uh, congressional districts are held by Republicans. Um, all of the statewide, minus Rob Sansi, uh is you know Republican. They hold you know majorities in the House and Senate. Republican. New Hampshire is a Republican state, has a Republican governor, has a Republican legislature, uh, but the electorate is very different as well. It is more moderate. Um, independents do have more of a say um, in that primary versus in Iowa, you know, if you want to vote in the Republican caucus, you have to change your voter registration to vote Republican. And so it does offer more avenues. Um, it's more uh, the ability to do retail politics is easier because the state is so small and more condensed voter wise. And so I, I think, you know, for Nikki, again, the strategy is going to be the same. Uh, it's going to be meeting with as many people as humanly possible, doing as many town hall events, uh, you know, sitting down, speaking with voters, having those conversations and, again reaching as many voters as humanly possible before next tuesday um she's got some great surrogates behind her you know judge judy's coming in on sunday to stump with her uh governor sununu has been by her side um since he endorsed her candidacy um and they've been hitting the trail together and so i think it's mostly just going to be meeting as many voters as humanly possible because the more they meet her the more they like her and so that helps as well Representative, um, you're going to be my my go-to DeSantis guy uh, today again. Um, so Rep, um, Governor DeSantis has not been performing well in New Hampshire in the polls. Um, just earlier this week or, or in the last couple of days, um, he did announce that he was going to be moving his folks down to South Carolina, re- reallocating his, his people, his time, his money. Um, now, I don't know how significant that amount is, being uh, of what what we've seen from him in the state in general, um, I do have to say that you know Trump, uh, Trump spokesperson said with when the shift was announced, DeSantis is still running. So little, little funny little statement there. But what's your take on on DeSantis? Maybe not focusing as much on New Hampshire. Obviously, put a lot into Iowa, focusing some other states. Um, what what's your take on the strategy there from the DeSantis campaign? 
Well, listen, I mean, you describe me as the your go-to DeSantis guy. Look, I like Ron DeSantis. Like, in my perfect world, he would be the guy. Um, but it's not my perfect world, and I don't get to make this decision. And I, I, I'm not – like, I haven't come out and endorsed him. I'm not participating right. in the campaign. So I can afford to be a little objective about the situation, right? And objectively speaking, I mean, the, if – this is the only choice he has, right? So if you're going to continue to keep this campaign going after what you just endured in Iowa, then yeah, skipping New Hampshire and going to South Carolina makes the most sense. Like if you're not going to suspend your campaign, then that makes the most sense. Um, but objectively speaking, I kind of feel as though, and, and this analysis, everybody had this analysis last week too, right? That the, the benchmark has been set in terms of, I think it was uh, John who laid out all the case as to the, all the endorsements that he's, he's received, Bob Vanderplatz, Kim Reynolds. It's like, if you were going to make your mark, now is the moment to make it. And I don't know that 20% is making that mark. And so I was kind of surprised. I mean, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that a campaign continues as long as it has some amount of money. But I was a little bit surprised at how optimistic and how how much they tried to spin Iowa as some sort of success when it very clearly, based upon the expectations that they were setting and that I echoed the last time we were all together, um, it was not. And so that's kind of my take. John, I want to hear from you a little bit uh, of what Representative Hudson just shared, but also with New Hampshire and the large group of uh, folks who identify as more moderate independents, do you think it was a good strategy for DeSantis to not spend as much time and energy in the state and move elsewhere? Are you surprised it took a week before the primary to to reallocate his resources? Or what are your thoughts with DeSantis and in the state and, and maybe his lack of resonating with the voters there? So New Hampshire is an interesting state in that <clears throat> – uh, plurality of the state identifies as unaffiliated. Uh, I think it's 40% unaffiliated, about 30% Republican, 30% Democrat. Uh, so there's definitely a big bucket of those voters who are up for grabs. Uh, the thing that I'm watching for DeSantis is, does he get skunked, right? Uh, New Hampshire has that 10% threshold for uh, being eligible to get some of those proportionally bound delegates. Uh, and if he is under 10%, uh, you know, he needs something to be to go his way. Uh, the next thing that we have after this is the Nevada caucus, uh, which I think is uh, February 8th. Uh, so caucus states tend to, again, be more conservative, uh, support more kind of uh, insurgent candidates, typically. Uh, that's gotten flipped on its head a little bit uh, in the era of Trump, especially with him being on the ballot and kind of dominating that MAGA lane. Uh, so I don't really know what DeSantis's strategy is here, because if he uh, you know, decides that he's all in on South Carolina, uh, we're, what, a month away from the Republican primary in South Carolina? Uh, that's a long time to run on fumes and try and land that plane. Uh, in order to get some sort of good news to, you know, try and get a shot back in his campaign's arm. Uh, and like Representative Hudson said, yeah, the Iowa results, uh, you know, I said it last time, but I just don't know where he goes from here. Uh, so the idea that he would just fully abandon uh, New Hampshire, 
I think that's probably a mistake uh, because he needs to outperform where he's been at in the polls. I think he's been kind of in those mid single digits, uh, which is under that 10%. And if he doesn't outperform that and make himself eligible for delegates, I don't know what his story is to keep that campaign running for the next month. Um, according to 538 right now in New Hampshire, Trump is leading with 43%. Haley's in second with about 30-ish percent. And DeSantis is in third with 6%, which is pretty dismal. Dave, I want to go to you now and kind of talk about the the Trump dynamic in New Hampshire. So we had you on to talk about the lawsuit and Trump's eligibility to even be on the ballot. Um, obviously, that is still in question in in a variety of states and you know in the Supreme Court as a whole. Um, but with Trump in New Hampshire and that large allocation of unaffiliated voters, forty percent of those, like John said, in the middle. Are you surprised that Trump is still in first and in double digits ahead of Haley in the state of New Hampshire? Or what is your take on him, his um, campaigning in the state as compared to the other candidates? Yeah, I'm not surprised uh, at Trump's numbers in New Hampshire. Uh, the unaffiliated um, is a is a factor, but you had to have switched your party affiliation back in October of last year. So there's a long lead time in New Hampshire for that party affiliation switch. Um, so I, I don't know if people were thinking back in October that I needed to switch to the Republican ballot in order to, uh, to vote, uh, against Trump at this point. Um, and I guess I would maybe disagree with John. Um, I think for DeSantis pulling out, maybe the smart play, because if he, if he underperforms in New Hampshire, uh, like he did in Iowa, I think that's kind of a body blow and I don't know where you go from there. Um, and absent the, the Nevada caucus, there's there's a whole month uh, of nothing else on the calendar until you get to South Carolina. So the, the the worst thing that I think could happen for him is he's got a whole month of trying to spin another underperformance. Understood. One thing I do want to chat about in New Hampshire is the Chris Christie impact. Um, Christie was polling previously around 12% uh, in typically in third place in New Hampshire. He staked a lot of his time and energy in the state. Uh, a lot of folks, myself included, were, were a little surprised that he did pull out before New Hampshire. I thought he was going to get there and, and then make his decision. But um, a lot of folks have also, uh, we've, we've seen that Folks who were Christie supporters said that Haley was their second choice. Priya, do you think that the Haley campaign is going to to get a lot of those Christie voters? What is she? Are you guys working within that, or um, is there any? You know, I was hopeful Christie would maybe come out and endorse her. We do know that there was a hot mic moment at his town hall with a comment about Haley. But what's the thought of of those voters, and and if they're going to come over to Ambassador Haley's side? You know, I think with you know. The Chris Christie voters, obviously, we're reaching a very wide pool of voters and trying to appeal to everyone. And so I don't think it's necessarily down to Chris Christie voters or DeSantis voters. This really is a two-person race right now between, you know, Nikki and Donald Trump. And so how does she go about appealing to folks who don't want another four years of Donald Trump is going to be the big question. And that's going to coalesce a lot of people from a lot of different, like, people groups. Um, you know, to your point, when you look at um, the in-depth numbers um, and kind of the breakdown of poll numbers, it does show that those Chris Christie voters are more likely to go to Nikki Haley than not. So obviously we're not going to, you know, count of all, you know, 
put all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak. But, um, you know, if that's kind of what the polls are saying, we kind of have to kind of glean in that direction that that is um, an assumption that we can make. Um, the one thing that I want to note going back just really quick, I know that there's a lot of talk about, you know, the Nevada caucus and that's kind of a dumpster fire right now to kind of put it politely because, um, you know, the state party is really gleaning on to, you know, we're going to abide by the Nevada caucus, but the state of Nevada has actually switched over to a primary, um, similar to Minnesota. And so right now they're actually holding both a caucus and a primary. Um, Nikki is on the primary ballot. Trump and DeSantis are on the caucus ballot. And so there's actually really not um, a lot of clarity on how all of this is going to play out, where whether folks are going to participate in the primary versus the caucus, how that's really going to all shake out at the end of the day. And so I think for a lot of people, they're looking at Nevada as kind of a wash, which to John and everybody else's conversation really further adds to this, you know, lag of momentum, right? You have to carry that momentum for a lot longer because folks aren't really going to be paying attention to Nevada in a way that they would have in years past. Thank you for sharing that. I actually was not aware that it was uh, the dumpster fire that you so eloquently mentioned. A representative, I think you had something to chime in on. Yeah. Listening to Preya's analysis reminded me of another factor that feeds into why I'm a little confused as to what the DeSantis campaign is doing. And that so on Monday night, you had the Haley campaign come out and say this is a two-person race now. And there was some immediate reaction on Twitter along the lines of you do realize you came in third, right? Um but despite that that kind of like, you know, low blow, the fact of the matter is like that's a fair analysis. If if you're operating from the premise that I floated last week, which is that the two lanes, the two actual lanes are MAGA and not MAGA. And in my view, DeSantis belongs in the MAGA lane rather than the not MAGA lane. And you can dispute that. But uh, assuming that I'm right for the, for the sake of discussion, I don't understand why DeSantis wouldn't look at what happened in Iowa and say, okay, I need to think about the future. And if if this is the direction that MAGA wants to go, which overwhelmingly it clearly is, then I need to save face by getting out, tossing my support to Trump, and acknowledging the fact that indeed Haley is correct, and it is a two-person race. And so you should pick the person who's more like me than less like me. And so it kind of raises the question as to what is his thought process and the thought process of his campaign as to where they see things landing. I mean, assuming they have the humility to understand that he's not going to be the nominee, what is their long-term vision of what they're trying to accomplish politically uh, in terms of the decisions they make throughout the rest of this process? I don't know the answer to that question. John. Uh, so you know, building on kind of the idea that there are two lanes in this race, there's the MAGA lane and then there's kind of the you know, everybody other than MAGA lane. Uh, clearly, DeSantis decided that that was the space that he wanted to try and occupy. Uh, he ran his campaign kind of on uh, some populist issues. He very much was focused on uh, kind of woke issues uh, rather than you know, some of the things that would have been his bread and butter otherwise, uh, having been one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, 
But what we saw in Iowa is that there's no space for somebody who's not Trump in the MAGA lane, right? The entrance poll showed that, what, 51-ish percent of the uh, caucus participants in Iowa identified as MAGA supporters, and Trump got 80% of those voters. Uh, so I think you know, when you're trying to come up with where you stand, you have to offer somebody uh, an alternative and a reason to be an alternative. And I don't know that DeSantis really ever made that case for uh, you know, the idea that he was you know, essentially Trump on the issues without Trump's drama. Uh, he was a younger Trump, whatever it was. Uh, he never really clearly established why he belonged in that MAGA lane and why he was better than Trump. And we've been talking about this since the debates. Uh, and I think the biggest place that you saw that is in the debates, they attacked each other for the last six months. Uh, it was DeSantis versus Vivek and Haley and Christie, and nobody ever drew that contrast with President Trump and tried to make the case for why they were a better alternative than him. Uh, and so that makes it really hard to occupy that MAGA lane when you can't differentiate yourself uh, but are trying to appeal to those voters. Uh, so yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, to the idea that there's two lanes, there are two lanes, and one of them is Donald Trump's. Uh, and there's no space for another candidate in that as long as uh, Donald Trump decides that he wants to occupy it. Dave, I know on Twitter you've shared some stuff from Principles First Pack and um, kind of with the argument of anybody but Trump. What is your take on what, you know, kind of John said about that Magdalene and the non-Magdalene and, and the candidates may be failing to differentiate themselves to be the anyone but? Yeah, so I, I think Representative Hudson is is absolutely correct on the, the Lane's idea. I, I think it's the Magdalene and non-Magdalene. Um, so I, I think uh, Trump will actually get a little bit of a boost uh, because anybody who was going to vote for uh, Vivek uh, in New Hampshire is is probably going to uh, to switch to Trump, uh, and if if DeSantis drops uh, his coverage, uh, moves his campaign um, staff away from New Hampshire, that probably gets more people to move away from DeSantis uh, and over to uh, to Trump. So I I think it's I, I think it's absolutely correct, and I think as much as Christie getting out uh, helps Haley, um, I think uh, I think the, the getting out uh, helps Trump, um, and I just I don't don't see any anything that's going to derail Trump um, at this point. I appreciate you bringing up Vimit because that was on my list too. Um, anybody else have any takes on if that has any impact on the race or um, we'll probably just, you know, he threw his weight behind Trump. Those, any of those voters would probably do the same. I see lots of nodding heads. All right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the only thing that I'll add to that, the only thing that I'll add to that is I've, I still remain, perplexed as to what Vivek's whole deal is. Um, like I deeply appreciate a lot of the things that he has brought to this campaign in terms of the arguments he's made, the focus on like turning the spotlight and focusing it on aspects of American, the American experience that aren't typically talked about and talking about them in ways that you might overhear at a bar, but you don't, you're not used to hearing from a debate stage. Like I really appreciate that. But I've never quite understood what his political goal was because he he was widely regarded as a Trump surrogate, which doesn't make any sense when you're running against Donald Trump. 
and uh, I the, the, the he didn't really fulfill any kind of like real spoiler purpose because he didn't present a a I mean you talk about DeSantis not providing a reason why you should go Trump over uh or go DeSantis over Trump. Vivek was literally saying Trump's been the best president of the modern generation of the last hundred years. And it's like, dude, you you're running a you know, like your name's next to him as a choice. I don't understand what your case is. And so Maybe people have kind of cynically said that he was running to be on Fox News or running to be on the Tucker Carlson network or whatever the case may be. And maybe it's that cynical and that base. Um, but I, I wonder if there isn't some unknown motive or plan that is yet to be revealed that will lend some credence to what Vivek has done here. Priya. So I've always lived under the theory that he's a snake oil salesman trying to hawk books, but that's just my own personal theory. Um, I will say I sat on a panel with his chief like comms guy. He was really nice, but he made the argument that he wasn't running against Trump, that he was running against everybody else, that Trump wasn't the problem. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, well, then why are you here? Why are you running if you're not running against Trump? Then, like, you're clearly not running for anything. And they really didn't have an answer for that. And I really do think, at the end of the day, they were just there to try to block off votes for Trump in some capacity to ensure that he had the ability to move forward. Um, because just nothing about their campaign at the end of the day made sense, and nothing that they said publicly or on panels or anything else like that really made sense as well. So, I, I don't know if that answers your question, Representative Hudson, but that is what I've heard them say directly, and frankly, I couldn't figure it out either. Michael, all you. I would describe uh, Vivek as a little bit like Harold Hill from The Music Man or Lyle Landley from the Monorail episode of The Simpsons. I think we're going to find out in a few weeks or a few months that he's uh, hawking trombones to a town or he's selling monorails somewhere. That's all I can really think. That's how he always came across to me. And I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Maybe my head wasn't meant to be wrapped around it, but that's that's where I think we're going to see him someday, is in some uh, new version of The Music Man where he's hawking something. And that's where I just think he's at. So that's, that's my take. I love it. Very colorful. I'm going to move on now to, uh, before we get into actual breakdown and predictions, um, I want to just chat about the significance of the New Hampshire uh, primary in the race as Overall, so we saw the caucus. We saw um, uh, Governor Hutchinson and uh, Ramaswamy both drop out after that. We'll come back to Governor Hutchinson in a second here. Um, but as we look at New Hampshire, one of the things that I had seen um, in doing some prep work here is that unlike Iowa, where 80% of the voters said that they made their decision a month out, New Hampshire tends to have more last-minute decisions. And that's something that um, obviously makes polls really more difficult. And so I think that is going to be something that I am going to be watching for. Um, additionally, I there was a recent roundtable that Governor Sununu uh, participated in, amongst others. And part of the discussion was the low, um, the low voter turnout in Iowa compared to what they anticipate it to be in New Hampshire. Um, so I want to go, uh, uh, Dave, if I can start with you, what is your take when you look at the global landscape of all the caucuses and primaries leading up to the president nomina- presidential nomination on the Republican side? What is your take on, on this 
New Hampshire primary and it, the impact that it might have um, either on candidates dropping out, surging, or or the like? So New Hampshire is interesting because uh, it, obviously primary versus caucus. So you have people voting the, the traditional manner that we're used to. Um, but what's interesting in New, New Hampshire, some of the polling uh, this last week has uh, Republicans with almost a, a 90 percent um, uh, response that they are coming out to vote. So that's that's incredibly high. And that's opposite of what we saw in Iowa, where a very small percentage of people came out to vote. Um, so it'll be interesting. I, I think it's it's going to give a more definitive uh, result than Iowa, uh, because I think people understand a primary better than they understand a caucus system. Um, so it's it, and be, like I said, because of the timing, this result is going to stand uh, for most of the next month. And that's what the media is going to have to hash and rehash. So it'll it'll be a, a big deal, whoever comes out on, on top or whoever places second. John, you spoke a little bit about uh, DeSantis needing to kind of keep some, you know, back backwind here, backdraft, uh, you know, getting pushed along from from Iowa through New Hampshire, the chaos that's going to be going on in Nevada to get to South Carolina to begin with. Do you anticipate his uh, likely low results, low poll or um, yeah, low, low results here to to be the death of his campaign, or do you think he's going to be able to sustain that um, and and kind of spin this out of New Hampshire? I mean, the reality is is that I think that the DeSantis campaign died in Iowa last week. Uh, he put all of his eggs in that basket, and he didn't deliver. His campaign was the one that was out setting expectations that they were going to shock the world, that they were going to win, that they had sixty thousand of these caucus commit cards. Uh, you know, if you have 60,000 caucus commit cards, you probably want to get more than 20,000 votes. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's really not a good look. Uh, and I understand, you know, they needed to uh, throw a Hail Mary. Uh, but when you get picked off in the end zone, when you try to throw that Hail Mary, game is over. Uh, he does not have another state where he can move that infrastructure and build that. Uh, so, yeah, the question more, you know, rather than is this the kind of death blow to his campaign, is does he get a big enough shot that he can limp along, uh, like the guy in Monty Python trying to assure everybody that it's just a flesh wound? Uh, so I think if he gets skunked and is under that ten percent, uh, you know, I just don't know what his campaign says. That being said, they have set the expectations so low for uh, New Hampshire that I don't know how they don't overperform. Uh, you know, if you're expected to get five points, uh, God, if you don't find a way to get more than five points, then you know, drop out now. Uh, you know, it's better to drop out before you end up underperforming the already you know discount basement uh, expectations that you've set for yourself. Uh, so really the number that I'm watching, uh, very similar to what I was watching in Iowa, is what's the margin between first and second? And does Donald Trump break 50% again? I think 50% was the magic number uh, that I talked about where I said DeSantis needed to be within spitting distance of that. He needed to keep Trump below 50 uh, in Iowa, and I think it's the same thing for uh, Nikki's campaign in New Hampshire. Is they need to find a way to keep Trump under fifty, uh, and I'll be watching how close they get uh, because 
Uh, similar to how DeSantis set expectations very high in Iowa, uh, the Haley campaign has set expectations very high in New Hampshire. Uh, there's been a little bit of an effort to walk that back with uh, Governor Sununu out there uh, this week saying, well, you know, she doesn't need to win if she's kind of within five-ish. That's a really, really good night, but she doesn't really have to be within five. Uh, so we're starting to see those goalposts shift. Uh, but, you know, I think for her to have a good night, uh, Trump under 50, her within five points or so, uh, to have a great night that probably shakes up the state of the race. She's got to pull off a miracle and win. Uh, and I don't think that that's particularly likely. Uh, so it's how big of a shot can she get and what happens to DeSantis between now and the end of February. Um, Priya, so Haley has um, spent the most time in New Hampshire. She had 49 events in the uh, in 35 days, a lot of time and energy in the state. Um, like we mentioned a little bit earlier about the historical context of the New Hampshire primary um, in the last, uh, aside from that 1996 Pat Buchanan one point when um, every winner of the New Hampshire primary in the recent history has gone on to be the Republican presidential nominee. Can you speak a little bit to and tell us about um, how, if Haley does not come out in first, how the the Haley camp and, and Haley supporters kind of message this going forward to show that she does still have momentum um, and, you know, might buck that trend and, and maybe come in second place, but still has potential to be the nominee? Absolutely. And so I actually will disagree with John here for a little bit, because I don't think the Haley campaign has set expectations whatsoever. I think it's polling in the media that's been trying to set expectations about what she's going to do the same way that they tried to close this race off on caucus night and say, Trump is going to be the nominee. He's the eventual nominee. He's going to be doing all of these things. It's like this race isn't over yet. And there's still so many variables and factors that we need to to look into. So I will say that, you know, I think definitely a strong second is, is going to be a good night for her. Um, obviously, you know, we still have so much of this race left. We still have South Carolina. We still have Super Tuesday, where we see a lot of opportunities to gain voters, gain uh, delegates. Uh, and that's really exciting for us. And so, you know, obviously, we're going to do everything in our power to win. You know, Nikki has said that, um, you know, she's not like coming into this race to to lose. But at the same time, like, we need to be realistic about what those expectations look like. And, you know, that's why they haven't been setting those expectations. Uh, you know, it's the media that's been doing that. And so, you know, to Governor Sununu's point, a strong second is a good night for her in New Hampshire. It propels her and gives her that momentum she needs to further uh, solidify that this is a two-person race, that Americans do have an alternative to Donald Trump if they want it, uh, and propels her to a good month in South Carolina, which she knows very well. Awesome. Thank you. I do want to move on to our round of predictions. Representative Hudson, I know you have to jump off a little early, so I'm going to start with you. Um, we'll go around if you kind of want to rank the order and if you want to throw any percentages behind it. Again, we're not sitting with our calculator, so don't worry about the math. But, um, you know, similar to what John was saying, you know, who is Trump going to surpass or is Trump going to win? If so, does he surpass 50? Who's going to be in second and by how much? And uh, how is DeSantis, is he going to get up in those upper single digits, low, lower, or low doubles? What are we going to see? What's your thoughts, Representative? 
Well, look, I mean, things usually go completely lopsided from however I predict. So this might be good news for some campaigns. But, um, you know, I would say that Trump wins, that he's north of 50% by quite a bit. Uh, and then it's going to be Haley and DeSantis. And the gap between those two is going to be significantly smaller than the gap between Trump and number two. That's my thought. Interesting. All right, Dave, welcome to the panel. Put you on the spot and get your rankings. Uh, yeah, so I would agree. I think I think Trump gets over 50%, which is a, is a clear victory for him. Um, I think Haley is in the low 40s. Uh, and I think uh, um, DeSantis, unfortunately, is is going to be in the single digits. And, and I don't think anybody else is going to be a factor in it, obviously. But um, yeah, it I, I wish it were different, but I, I think Trump is going to going to come out on top again on this one. John, let's get your math today. So I actually had time to prepare for this one because my <laughs> math added up to like 120 percent last time. Uh, so I've got Trump in the mid 50s, Haley in the mid 30s and DeSantis just under 10, uh, showing up with a grand total of zero delegates leaving New Hampshire. Uh, and that's where I think this is going to shake out. Uh, but again, I think Haley really needs to be within five to declare victory uh, of any sort, uh, moral or otherwise, on Tuesday night. Priya, what's your take? I work for the Super PAC. She's going to win. I'm just, I mean, like realistically, though, you know, I think she's going to have a really great night. It's going to be a close. It's going to be close between her and Trump. I don't think DeSantis has a chance. Um, and that's kind of the end of it. I won't put numbers or predictions next to him. So, because I'm biased, I already know it. We'll take it. The only question I'm going to say, do you think DeSantis breaks 10%? No, of course not. All right. And Michael. I'm going to go Trump, Haley, DeSantis. I think Trump will probably be north of 50. And the question is, where is Haley in her proximity to Trump. I do think, I don't think that DeSantis gets over 10%. I'll, I'll piggyback on John's and I'll also add a, a, just a preface by saying, I wish this wasn't the case, as I've said earlier. I, I, and I've been, as these conversations have gone and I've listened, I've become more and more of a, a fan of Nikki Haley and I really hope that she breaks through and has that opportunity. But we'll see what happens. I, I still think it's going to be, I still think it's going to be Trump that's going to win and we'll see what happens. There's been history before. It was in 1992, February 1992, and I'll date myself with this reference, that Bill Clinton, I remember watching on TV, I was a senior in high school, I remember watching on TV Bill Clinton go up and give a speech after finishing in second place in the New Hampshire primary. He went out and labeled himself the comeback kid. In the, you know, kind of the weeks leading up to the New Hampshire primary, Clinton had been kind of dusted up a bit uh, with some allegations, um, and the expectation was, despite him uh, in leading in some initial polling in New Hampshire, that he could have a bit of a tough showing. And so his proximity, his second place win and coming in second place and the margin of victory between himself and then the person who won the New Hampshire primary, Paul Songus, Clinton was able to come out and say, he, based on the, the margin, based on how close the race was, uh, and it wasn't that close. I think it was, you know, low 30s. I think I think uh, Songus was in the low 30s. I think Clinton was in the mid-20s. But just that margin of Songus's victory being so close, Clinton was able to come out and gain momentum in that race. And without a doubt, the 1992 New Hampshire Democratic primary was a key moment in the race 
for the Democratic nomination in 1992. And it has that opportunity again, should Haley do that night. It could really reframe this race. And so what I'm looking for is that potential margin of victory. I think right now, I think we all agree that Trump is going to win. But that margin that Haley is in second, boy, she could really have a similar situation that Clinton had in 1992. Obviously, the circumstances aren't the same. Uh, but the, the issue would be her finishing in second and having a closer margin with Trump. With Trump, She might be able to go out there and, and claim a, a mantle of mom, some, that there's some momentum on her side. And there's some history for that. So we'll see what happens on Tuesday. This is a good opportunity for her. And this could be very problematic for DeSantis, um, particularly where his placement was in Iowa and coming in in a very distant third here. It's going to be tough for him to have a message coming out. That's my take. It's always fun going last, second to last, because I get to hear in this episode, four smart people get to go before me. It's like hearing the answers before you have to <laughs> give yours. It's just fantastic. So given we all predicted the same order, uh, does Haley crack 40%? Uh, does anybody think that she gets there? I hope so. I do. So I here's I'm gonna I'm gonna do mine because I haven't jumped in yet with mine. I think I'm gonna keep Trump under fifty percent. I, I think he's gonna be close, but I think he's gonna keep under. And I think Haley will get uh just over forty. I think I'm I'm going into this one cautiously optimistic, manifesting um some some good juju for for Ambassador Haley. Um, my gal, I want her to do well here. I think this is her real big shot. Um, and I'm really cautiously optimistic. I think that DeSantis is gonna stay under ten. Um but for others, who else thinks show of hands real quick that I'll recap. Any anybody else think that Haley's gonna break forty? Ah, we got a couple. We got two. All right. I'm an, I'm an there internal we go. optimist. Half of our panelists. If Haley breaks 40 and Trump is closer to 50, that's that's a that could be a that's a could be a pivotal moment. That could absolutely be a pivotal moment. And I hope <laughs> it is. I've tried to explain my biases and stuff and and uh, I hope it is, but I just that'd be great. Well, time will tell. Say, I'll say one thing real quick. Trump did get like hovered around 50% in one of the most conservative states in the country on caucus night, a state he should have ran a gambit on and he didn't. And I think that's incredibly telling that if he can get, if he's hovering right around 50 in the state of Iowa, it doesn't, it's not good news for him elsewhere. I love it. Um, I want to go into our last breakdown topic here, and that is the Governor Hutchinson dust-up that happened uh, recently. So uh, just a recap for anybody who's not aware, DNC sent out a statement um, that said uh, after Governor Hutchinson dropped out of the Republican race, said this news comes to a shock to those of us who could have sworn he had already dropped out. The White House uh, chief of staff then called Hutchinson um, to apologize, did a public apology. I gotta. I, I'm interested in other people's takes because I spent, you know, ten years working in Republican politics on the comm side. This was like bread and butter, right? Like this is the easiest thing to write ever. I think I made this joke um, on our Iowa caucus one that like I forgot that he was in the race until we saw some of those results come in. Was this a big deal? Why did the White House um, do it? Priya, you work in comms. What's going on here? I actually sent that around to a ton of my friends that I worked with at the RNC, and literally my tweet under my response underneath was, "Can you imagine if somebody in the Trump White House had to apologize for the things we said about other candidates 
in our statements, but we were fully on the record. I, I'll give an example. I did an interview with Pat Condon, I think in 2018, when Amy Klobuchar was running for re-election, and it was right after that dog died in like the United uh, Airlines plane. And she literally the next day sponsored legislation saying, you know, we need to protect our animals, yada, 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 very Klobuchar friendly. And I, it was a 20 minute interview, fully on the record. And I literally told Pat Condon something to the effect of, you know, Amy Klobuchar is never around when actual things are happening, but the moment a dog dies on an airplane, that's when she steps up. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, that was the quote that ended up in the Star Tribune article. Can you imagine? Like, I feel like that's 10 times worse than the DNC said. Can you imagine if somebody in the Trump White House had to apologize for that or Ron and McDaniel had to go and apologize for that? It wouldn't happen. I think everybody's just being overly sensitive. Like, this is par for the course. Frankly, that's probably the nicest thing somebody has said about Asa Hutchinson in, like, the last couple of months. So, I mean, like, I don't know. From a comics perspective, it's just, it was blown out of water. Michael, what are your I, thoughts? I have to tell you something that as the trajectory of my career in terms of partisanship is I've gotten a lot, I've gotten pretty soft these days in terms of where I used to be. I have to tell you that this was, I thought this was really wimpy because first of all, Becky, you, you made this comment in the podcast and I thought it was very well within bounds. It's just normal snark, as you said, just absolutely normal snark. I remember when uh, I was at the party and I think Tom Rukavina announced he was running for governor, the late, great Tom Rukavina. I think the Republican party sent out a press release that said, who? Um, just as kind of a gag. And, you know, we have to just recognize something that we're in a very hyper-partisan time. And, we, and we've seen uh, some very extreme examples of that type of hyper-partisanship. But let's remember something. Politics is supposed to be fun. And we're supposed to be able to have lighthearted commentary and this type of stuff. My full compliments to, to, to Governor Hutchinson and his work. It, it is an absolutely well-within-the-bounds pitch. And... It just happens, and boy, do I think we're getting as to, to Preya's point, and I think she articulated it very well. Can you imagine the fact that the White House Chief of Staff needed a call, and there needed to be a discussion about this? My goodness gracious, uh, it's it's we have to get in this kind of normal discourse of politics. That type of silliness is type of is is, is there's a place for that. Politics needs to be fun once in a while, and you have to have tough skin. And that was, I think, a very much an overreaction to some just political snark. Now, John, I know in your roles over the years, um, providing snark and snarky comments has been something that you have excelled in. Uh, I mean, it's just laughable, right? I think my most quoted press release ever was there was a Democrat who announced they were running for governor in 2018. uh, And I put out a statement that said, LOL. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's this is all par for the course. Uh, yeah, I've said much meaner things than this in press releases. Uh, I've said much meaner things in interviews that are on the record. Uh, yeah, I think this was no big deal. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Biden and Hutchinson have kind of a friendship outside of politics. Uh, so I kind of get if he wanted to, you know, make a call and say, hey, like, Sorry that they said that about you, but you get it. Um, but you know, Hutchinson's a pro. This is not the first or last mean thing that somebody has said about him. Uh, you know, politics ain't beanbag. Dave, any take on this? 
Yeah, so uh, I I agree. It wasn't a huge deal. It, it shouldn't have been anything that there was a, a lot of outrage over. But I think this was a political victory for Biden, uh, for for his administration, because they came in immediately with an apology that whether it was needed or not, it made them made the White House look like the statesman uh, compared to you know what we see out of Donald Trump. So this could have even been been a planned um, deal where they knew what the DNC was going to say that the DNC gets their snarky moment. And then the White House gets to come in and, and look like the adult in the room. So I think it was I think it was well done. I need to correct myself on air very quickly because I just did a quick search in my files here. The Republican Party of Minnesota said seriously, not who. We said seriously in relation to the Tom Rukavina announcement for governor. God, Tom Rukavina was a gentleman. He was a statesman. He was a kind gentleman. But that's the type of snark that I think uh, certainly someone that I think we all know on this call, Mark Drake, has been a part of and. That was the response, just a one-cent response that said, seriously, and that's just the snarkiness that you do sometimes in politics. So it wasn't who, it was seriously, question mark. And so just wanted to correct myself on here. I appreciate your honesty. Uh, you know, when this came out and, and Michael and I were texting, it was one of those, I, I think I said, it's the one thing I actually miss from working in partisan Republican comms is the snark, because you get to be sarcastic. You get to say things that you, I mean, that people look at. I mean, the goal is kind of to just catch people's attention by saying something that they're like, oh my God, this is a little ridiculous. Um, it's funny. I think it's kind of wild. But like you said, there's probably, it's got to be more about the personal relationship between the two um, than anything else, because they have said way worse about the other candidates still in the race. And I can't imagine any apology is going to be coming anytime soon. So that is our show today. Anybody have anything else for the good of the order before we wrap up all things New Hampshire? Yeah, just to say that um, there's not one, but two Minnesota candidates uh, in the New Hampshire uh, primary. Our very own Bob Carney Jr. is on the ballot uh, for the Republican side. So there's a, there's a definite Minnesota angle here. So it's Dean Phillips and Bob Carney? Bob Carney Jr., yep. Does it say Bob? Not, it, doesn't he have something with his name? Is it just straight Bob Carney? Uh, I can. Did look. he not put again in there? Again, yes. That's that's <laughs> what I was going to. I knew someone. On, I knew. It, I knew it's, someone. It's Robert S. Carney Jr. from Minnesota. Dave, fantastic work. Yes, we'll certainly have to break down the the results on the Democratic side as well, even though they're non-binding and, you know, just a little chaotic. But in our recap, we'll, we'll be sure to do that because uh, we did um, in our episode that we put out earlier this week, we did mention uh, – that that um, Dean Phillips does have uh, has been getting a boost in the state, so it will be interesting to watch how that plays out. So that is it. Thank you all for coming. Really appreciate the time today to break down all things New Hampshire primary. Looking forward to see what the results are on uh, Tuesday, January twenty third, and we'll be excited to chat again soon as we move towards other states. Thanks all. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review or give us a shout out on our website or across all social media platforms at at BBBreakPod. The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky will return next week. Thank you again for listening.